you know, part of what church is for um, for me and for you is, you know, there's there's a there's an idea in life that you get out of it what you expect to get out of it, and you get out of it what you put into it. And so sometimes when we come to church, you know, something that I've been saying for seven years is that. You know, for those of you that come every week and you sit in the same chairs, I can look around. I know who's here and not because you guys sit in the same chairs every week, you know, and um, it becomes routine and it becomes it becomes kind of scheduled. And I, I never want our fellowship. And that's why I say this all the time. I never want our fellowship to get to the point where we do anything that is just so remote that we forget that we gather on Sundays to receive from the Lord. Somebody say amen. You know, and what I do and what the worship team does and what we put together as far as schedule goes, sing two songs, communion, pray, pray for the offering. You know, we, we have a schedule, but we don't ever want that schedule to schedule us. We want to come with a heart that wants to connect with God sometime between the time you got here and the time you left. Amen? Because if your Sunday doesn't change your Monday, then your Sunday didn't count. And I would say that to some degree, it's a little bit of the expectation that you have. And if you show up, oh, I'm just going to go through the motions again, and God doesn't care. He's not going to do nothing different to touch me, then maybe that's your outcome. But if you come on Sunday and you say, God, I want to meet with you through your word, through worship. I want you to heal and touch this part of my life. I want, I want answers for these questions that I have as you personally seek God, that I really believe God will meet you where you are. And my prayer for you every Sunday and every week that you come, because I, you know, I look around the room and I realize that there's people that are you know, um, in different walks and been walking with the Lord for a very little amount of time. And, ha- and, and people that have been walking with the Lord for a long time. And people that have different struggles in different places in life. And there's nothing that we can manufacture that is going to meet every facet that, that, that exists in this room. Other than as you come to personally seek God to meet you where you are. Amen? Amen. So let's open our Bibles. You know, we're, we're, we're committed to um, teaching through the Bible. It was funny, this last week, I taught a sermon last Sunday on the difference between pre-tribulation, mid-tribulation, and post-tribulation rapture. Everybody knows where I stand. I'm a pre-tribulation guy through and through. Um, it's not a separating issue in the church. If you have a different opinion, you have the right to be wrong. It doesn't matter. We're, we're still brothers and sisters in Jesus. You know, like we love each other. Like it's not, Jesus didn't say that, that the number one thing that we should be and do is have good Bible doctrine. And he said the first thing you have to do is love one another. And, and you all have a trump card. Look, if somebody wants to argue with you about some things in the Bible, this is what you tell them. Just tell them this. What is the most fundamental, basic, elementary principle of Christian living? What did Jesus say? They came to Jesus. They said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And what's the second? And love your neighbor as yourself. So you just ask them, hey, do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul? Well, not really. Do you love your neighbor as yourself? Oh, I try. Well, until you can get those two things down, let's not argue about the, the particulars of the rest of Christianity until you can get the basics down. So let's focus first on loving one another, loving God. But you know what? We, we do stand. You know, I heard Stephen Furtick say this week. He said, oh, I didn't want to start a church that was going to be about which, what time of the rapture was going to happen. And that Sunday I was preaching on what time the rapture was going to happen. You know, and I'm like, and, and Stephen Furtick has his own gig going on. And he's got, you know, he's got a certain call and a ministry. And he, he's real encouraging. And, and God has set him up a certain way. But you know what? God just set me up a different way. It doesn't mean one is right and one is wrong. And, you know, I, I remember I sought the Lord before we planted this church. And I spent a year and a half because I, I came out of this kind of cookie-cutter Calvary Chapel ministry for so many years. And so when I left and came here, 
I said, I, I don't want to believe that I just repeat this cookie cutter model and then God's going to show up and everything's going to happen. I want it to be a genuine move of God's spirit. And I really want God to guide and lead what's going to happen here in Tooele for God's spirit to move on folks. And a year and a half, I fasted and I prayed, not a year and a half straight of fasting. You obviously can tell I don't fast very often. But um, I spent some time really, really in depth, really seeking the Lord. And I was alone in my bathroom after a year and a half of praying for asking God a question. And God spoke to me. And he gave me two words. No, that's three words. Sorry. Three words. I was playing basketball one time. And this kid was, was on our team. And it was Tommy and me. And uh, Tommy, and, Tommy and I, we don't, we don't pass the ball very much, you know. If you're born to score, you don't need to pass the basketball. When you get it, you shoot it, right, because it goes in the hole. So Tommy and I are on the same team. I don't think anybody else touched the ball, and this kid is so frustrated. He gets it. Tommy's like, you need to learn a three-letter word, pass. <laughs> and we laughed so hard. But God, God gave me three words after a year and a half of seeking. I'm like, really, God, that's all I get after a year and a half of diligently like seeking you for what you want for me? And God said, stay the course. That's what he told me, for me personally. So for me, stay the course means that we're going to continue to be a church that, that just teaches the Word of God. Because the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And as you grow in Jesus and as you grow in the, in the Word of God, and as we spend time in the Old Testament on Wednesday nights and the New Testament on Sunday mornings, our heart is that you're going to gain a, a, a deep maturity in Christian living. You know, there's lots of churches like Elevation Church, and one of the things they're very good at is seeing new believers come to Jesus because it's exciting and it's friendly and it's, it's, it's always feel good. They're never going to talk about homosexuality. They're never going to talk about controversy. They're never going to talk about sin. They're never going to talk about hell. They're never going to talk about the rapture or the timing of the rapture. Never once in the 15 years of, of sermons will you ever hear any of those topics coming out of Elevation Church or a lot of church models just like that. And again, those are our brothers in Jesus. I'm not... I'm not judging them. Be careful. I'm not at all. I'm just saying that that, that, that that model sees a lot of people come to Jesus. But but you know what happens? And you'll even ask them. They'll say the churches around us that are more discipling churches, like kind of what we are, they're, they're growing because people are coming, they're getting saved. And then when you get to the point where you, you need to go to the next level, and the only way you're going to do that is a systematic study of God's Word and getting to know Jesus and growing, and then they're growing and and sometimes they're, they're planning, then they're going to Calvary chapels and other churches like ours that have a focus on discipling and teaching and growing. Now, again, I think, you know, we're all a part of the body of Christ and we need them all. We accent together. Sometimes, unfortunately, among Christians, we fight because I have the call and the gift to teach the word of God. And another brother has a call or a gift to be an evangelist and to evangelize and you know, I'm looking at him, well, why don't you ever teach the Bible? You just evangelize. And he says, well, why don't you ever evangelize? You know, and like we're mad at each other. But that's, that's not the way that God designed it. He has a call and a gift of God to do evangelism. Let him do evangelism and God bless him. He's my brother in Jesus. I have a different call and gift. I'm not wrong. He's not wrong. We have different callings and giftings, right? Some of you guys are plumbers and some of you guys are electricians. Hey, the electricians don't plumb and the plumbers don't electrocute each other, you know, or whatever they do. But, but one's not right and one's not wrong. It's a different function in the body of Christ. Amen? I don't know why I needed to share that with you guys, but <laughs> I felt like, hey. So because we're, we're probably because of what I heard Stephen Furtick say this week, it was like kind of cut a little bit. Hey, open your Bibles, Second Thessalonians. 
Maybe this was right where I was. That very same week that I'm like, you know, I'm going to hit this hard rapture, timing of the rapture. I'm watching him and John Gray in an interview. Did you guys see it? Anybody? No? All right. Um, hey, so we're starting the second letter to the Thessalonica, Thessalonians. Now, as you guys know, Paul got to Thessalonica, and he was only there for three Sabbaths before they ran him out of town. So what's, what's, what's amazing about this particular church plant is Paul did it in three weeks. Now, that's, that's amazing. Nobody goes to a city and in three weeks plants a church that starts growing and thriving. But the Thessalonians and other places, in Ephesus, Paul was there for two years to do the same thing. And, and so in this church, he, he, he was the first, probably Galatians was the first book that Paul wrote, and then First and Second Thessalonians. So very early in Paul's ministry and his journeys, he writes this book. What's fascinating is that in a young church that was only, Paul only had three weeks to spend with them. In the very early, early days of Paul's writings, he hadn't written Acts. I mean, he didn't write Acts. He hadn't written Romans. He hadn't written the rest of the epistles, Timothy, any of those things. And, and Thessalonians first, that he deals with end times um, scenario, the Antichrist, the rapture, the, the timing of Jesus' return. You would think that's more second level stuff that for a church that had been established a long time and that had the other foundations that then he would eventually get on to those topics, but he hits it right in the beginning. So he taught them about the return of Jesus. And we get in First Thessalonians. We studied last week, and that's why we hit the timing of the rapture so hard. But one of the things that happened is after Paul wrote his first letter, um, now he's gone, and probably a year later, there's probably a year between last week's sermon and today of timing be- before Paul writes this second letter to the Thessalonians. And what happened was they had developed some confusion over the end times in two areas. Number one, and he dealt with this in First Thessalonians, they thought they had missed the rapture because people in, in their church began to die before Jesus came back and they didn't understand what Paul was teaching and that's why Paul cleared it up last um, chapter 4 and 5 of First Thessalonians that they didn't miss the rapture. Well, then there was this false letter, which was the, the, the way it goes. You know, when we plagiarize today, we take somebody else's work and then we put our name on it. That's plagiarism. The way they would plagiarize in the old days is they would take their own work and their own writings and write them and then put somebody else's name on the bottom to give them authenticity. So they would write things and then they would sign it from the Apostle Paul. Would send it. Well, the Thessalonians received one of these fake letters that supposedly came from Paul and in it, it had said that they missed the day of the Lord. And so Paul's going to clear up here in Thessalonians, you didn't miss the rapture last week. And you didn't miss the day of the Lord or the day of God's vengeance. Now, you have to understand what that means and and where that is. So I'll try to unpack that for you guys as we go through this. But, um, you know, the day that we live in today, it's a lot easier for people to believe that they're in the great tribulation. Okay? So the day of the Lord, it begins at the rapture. The church goes up. It's the beginning of the seven-year tribulation of God's wrath. So they believed... And according to this false letter and the second kind of confusion they had is that they had entered into this seven-year period of human history. Now, they didn't have the book of Revelation. They didn't have Romans. They didn't have all the um, Corinthians and all the stuff that we have for us to understand, and they were confused. But you know what? I oftentimes um, talk to folks who who assume or think or hear or or, or wonder, are we actually entering into that seven-year period? Are we beginning to experience some of the things that Revelation talks about? And so it's, it's easy to believe that today because 
You know, we're fast approaching a day where Jesus said that men's hearts would fail them for fear. Right? Like, that's a crazy, crazy thought that's coming, that it's going to get so bad that people literally are going to fall over dead from fear. How'd your grandpa die? <laughs> that's bad, huh? <laughs> from fear. And, and, and listen, there, there's, and what Paul is going to teach and what I want to explain to you guys today is that Jesus said this. You can take notes, write this down. John 16, he said, In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. That word tribulation that Jesus uses in John 16, is not the same as the great tribulation. There, there's two sources of tribulation in the Bible. One of them comes from the world, from your flesh, and from Satan. Those are attacks on you as a Christian. And you're going to face opposition in this world. Jesus said, make sure you understand you will face trials and tribulations. As believers, as humans, we're going to face ups and downs and we're going to face hardships that the Bible describes as tribulations. Now the second source of tribulation that's biblical is one that comes directly from the throne of God. For example, Sodom and Gomorrah fire and brimstone rains from heaven and kills everybody in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's a judgment that comes from the throne of God. Noah and his family um, enter an ark and God floods the world and kills the entire population of planet earth in a flood of Noah. That comes from the throne of God. That's a different type of tribulation. The tribulation that is coming is so terrible that, that Jesus said it will not be rivaled at any time in, in, pa- in, future, in past history. There will be nothing compared to it. It will be so bad the world will have never seen it. Well, the world has already seen the flood of Noah. The world's already seen some bad stuff. And what is coming won't even compare and compa- or pale in comparison to, to or what is come, what has been will pale in comparison to what's coming. So listen, you can't mistake the tribulation that's going to come from the throne of God, Revelation 6 through 19, through the trials that we have today. And that's what Paul's going to explain. Amen? Paul, verse 1, Paul, Silvanus, who's Silvanus? Silas and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, that's the second, that's just what we call a Pauline greeting. Oftentimes he uses grace, um, hope, and love in his greetings. And this time when he leaves out hope, they were lacking hope in this particular chapter, in this particular situation, because their hope was fading because they believed they were entering into the Great Tribulation period. And Paul's going to say, hey, you guys are not entering into the Great Tribulation period. It's not, it's not happening. But he, met, he leaves out hope here. Hey, but look at 2 Thessalonians, verse 1 there. I'm going to turn back one page, and I'm going to read to you the same greeting in the first letter Paul wrote. Tell me if you guys can find a difference. You're looking at it, 2 Thessalonians. Paul, Silvanius, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Any difference? Same, right? No, it's not the same. What's the difference? Our. What does he say? I read the Father. Do it again. You guys follow it in second. I'll read it to you in first. To the church of the Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. In the second epistle, he says, the Father and our Lord, or our Father. So there's a difference between the Father. When he first meets them and he shows up to the Thessalonians, it's the Father. 
That's impersonal. That's, hey, I want to introduce you to the Father. And then by the time he gets to 2 Thessalonians, where they've grown, they've become a church, he now says, our Father, right? We sang a song this morning, Good, Good Father. And, and, and that's such a personal idea of God that is so powerful. That's why that song is so powerful and so good. Because it helps us take God out of the impersonal and put him into our daily lives that, that the God who created us is personal and that he's a father. He's not only a father, but he's a good, good father. God is not only good, God is so good. God is not only good, he's so good. He's not just a father, he's a good, good father. And, and, and some of us have had great relationships with earthly fathers and some have bad experiences with earthly fathers, but you can always rest assured and always be comforted knowing that you have a good, good father who's perfect in heaven. And he'll never leave you and forsake you. And then he goes on and he says in verse 2, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as is fitting, because your faith grows exceedingly and the love of every one of you all abounds towards each other. I like that he starts that by saying we are bound to give God thanks for you always. You know, as a shepherd of, of, of a local church, I, I feel the same way. I feel bound to give God thanks for you. I also feel bound to pray for you. And, and I do. And I don't know how well I do this, but I'll tell you, I do make an effort to pray for each one of you individually. Usually the way that that works is as I spend time in prayer, God will begin to put people on my heart and mind. And when I think of you, I'll pray for you. And if I'm driving the car or do that the week, I never think that it's random, you know, for some, me to think of somebody in the middle of the week. I know that's God reminding me to pray and, and to pray for one another. So Paul's praying for them. He felt bound by by the Lord to, to give thanks for them and to pray for them. And he says, because why? Because your faith grows exceedingly. And the love of every one of you. So two things in this church. Now, this is a church you want to be a part of. They're a church that has growing faith, which means they believe in God. They're, they're, no matter where, no matter when, no matter why, they want to follow the Lord. You know, you know one of the things that... that will separate, I think, the sheep and the goat. And you don't want to be a goat. Is You know, I, I remember one time I was a new Christian, and we were at Joshua Springs, and we were doing a men's retreat. And we do a men's retreat on Catalina Island. It was so epic, right? Like we'd take a boat, we'd have 150 men, and we'd rent this campsite in Catalina, and we'd snorkel and fish, and had all this, it was just like man overload, right? We, when we left Catalina, we went to a place in San Diego, and this place had a shooting range there. So it was guns and Bibles for the weekend. But every year we'd pick retreat centers and we went to Catalina a couple years and I remember one of the brothers in church and, and I'm young and new and I said, are you guys going to the men's retreat this year? And they're like, oh no, the, the weather's supposed to be bad. And then he said this, and I think he was kind of joking, but it just stuck with me. He said, we're fair weather Christians. And like the weather in Catalina is going to be bad this weekend and like you really go up for the snorkeling and the fun, but because the weather's bad, you didn't want to go. Like, you're a fair-weather Christian. I'm like, yeah, I don't think I want to be a fair-weather Christian. I think I want to be a Christian in any weather. I think I want to be faithful to the Lord no matter when, no matter where, no matter why, no matter how. And listen, I try to warn you guys, you know why I try to be faithful to what the Word of God teaches about tribulations and trials and about hardships in your life? Because you're going to face those things. And the reality is you have to make a decision beforehand that if things go bad in your life or if you, if you face hard things, are you going to be angry at God? Are you a fair-weather Christian and when the weather's bad, are you going to turn your back on things because God didn't show up in your situation? Or are you going to be faithful to God no matter when, no matter where, no matter why, no matter how, and that's your attitude and your onlook in life? That God is God and God is good 
And there's going to come a day, and in this chapter, there's going to be some encouragement coming your way in this chapter where it's going to encourage you that God is good all the time and that God is good no matter what, and there will come a day of justice. But Jesus said in the meantime, you will face tribulations and trials. And we cannot be, and we don't want to be fair-weather Christians. You know, I really feel, you guys, like, to some degree, right now, even now, I believe that that God is weeding out a little bit. I think there's going to come a point, there's come a season where God's going to separate us a little bit between those that really are faithful and those that, you know, I tell this story all the time. There was a Bible study, an illegal Bible study happening in Russia. And it was totally illegal. You go to jail if you have a Bible, if you have a Bible study. And these people are secretly meeting in a home in a flat in Russia. And the doors come bursting open and Russian soldiers come in with AK-47s. And they're busted and they're scared to death. They got caught red-handed, Bibles in their hands. They're all going to jail, persecution, bad stuff. And the soldiers say, all right, if you're not here for a Bible study, you're not a real Christian, leave. And a bunch of people are like, really? They drop their Bibles and they run out the door and a few faithful stay. And then after they leave, the soldiers lock the door and they put their guns down. And they say, okay, good. We want to have a Bible study with some real Christians. You know, and so it's like, but, but I do think that even in church, you know, I, I don't know that, that we can necessarily assume that as we gather because we sit in these seats that every one of us is born again, that every one of us is ready for Jesus Christ. And so um, as, as we go on here, let's look at this. It says, so this church, their faith was growing. And then secondly, it says the love of every one of you abound towards. Okay, when I pause like that, if you're new, that's where you fill in the blank. And you've got to have your Bible on your lap to be able to do it. So one more time. And the love of every one of you all abounds towards. One more time. All abounds towards. Who did the love abound for, towards? Who's that? That's the people in the fellowship at Thessalonica. Look at your neighbor and say, I love you. Not the person you came with. Look at some stranger and tell him you love him. Is that weird? Do it again. Now give him a holy kiss. Now give him a hug. No, just kidding. Don't do that. Different church. That's a different vibe. You know, one of the things that that we try to do, and it's something that you know, I, I try to tell you, and if you know me very long, if you've, if you've met me, and hopefully you don't think it's just cliche because there's a really a reason why I do it, but I, I'll probably tell you I love you at some point pretty quick with know you. And then every time I see you, when, I, when we leave, when you come, I'll say I love you. And, and part of it is just trying to be obedient to this idea of being loving. And, you know, even in our men's discipleship and our men's fellowship that we do as we get the guys together, it's a culture that, that we try to create where it's okay for two big, rough, tough men who, who love Jesus to, to look at each other and say, hey, I love you, man. I love you. I love you. And it's, it's important because it's true, first of all, right? And, and, and it's a little different, like, for, like, the, the girls that come to church here when I say to you, I love you. You know, your husband's standing there, and he's maybe not a Christian, and your pastor's saying, I love you. You know, it's kind of weird, right? But, but at the same time, you know, I try to do it tactfully and, and with the understanding that I, I love you in Jesus. I don't love you because something special. I may not even know you, but, but because God is in me, I'm supposed to do this. I'm supposed to have this. And I want to exercise this. And when I say I love you, I'm saying I love you in Jesus. I love you because Jesus loves you. I love you as a sister, as a brother in Jesus. Well, the Thessalonican church, and really what we started with, was, was powerful because this church that Paul started, where they excelled was in their faith, which is amazing because they were reading the Word. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So they had to be in the Word of God and growing in their faith. You know, because all love 
with no faith and with no truth, that's dangerous. And all truth with no love, that's legalism and self-righteousness. So you have to have a balance of love and, and of truth, right? If, if, you, if you just have all love, then maybe your attitude with your kids is like, oh, sweetie, yeah, just eat 100 chocolate bars in an hour if you want. It's fine. I love you. Go play on the freeway. I love you. That, that's not love because you don't want to tell them, no, you love them so much, you let them do what they want. That's not love, right? Love says, no, you're not eating 99 hamburgers or your stomach's going to get sick. Give it back. Love says, no, you're not going to play in the street because you'll get hit by a car. But if we have all truth and, and you know, with, without any love, that's dangerous as well. Because love, truth not tampered with love is, is offensive and it hurts. And it's just not, not healthy either. But here we have this, this great combination of faith and love. And again, this is a church you want to be a part of. This is a church we want to create. And you know what? Let me tell you something. Jesus said this. I, I'm going to read it for you verbatim. I think I got it down, but just so I get it right, I'm going to read it to you. This is what Jesus said about the issue. John 13, 35. By this, all will know you are my disciples. So this is how Jesus said other people will know that you're a follower of Jesus. Well, then, then he says, what do you think he's going to say next? Because you wear a Tooele Springs t-shirt. People are going to see that. Oh, you go to church. You must be a Christian. Is that how people will know that you're a disciple of Jesus? How about, you know, by a hat or bumper sticker? How about, you know, you're down at the homeless shelter and you're giving out sandwiches to homeless folks. Is that what he's going to say? Listen to what Jesus says. It's kind of fascinating to me. This is how people, when they look at you, will know if you're a disciple of Jesus. If you have love, one, for another. You know what's so crazy about that? Jesus didn't say, if you love the lost, if you love those that are outside of the body of Christ. Now, now don't get me wrong. We're supposed to love those that are outside the body of Christ. But, but first, the, the real call of God, the real prescription that God gave us is that we're supposed to love each other. If you guys will start loving, if we will start, not you guys, don't ever let me say you guys because I'm, I'm a part of you guys. We guys, if we guys ever start loving each other like Christ loves us, this place will explode. If we really start loving across the aisles as, as, as Jesus laid out and as the Bible laid out, that's our goal. That's our focus. That's our lives. Then, then we're naturally going to start loving people outside the flock. I got a call. Actually, if I'm being honest, I get about three of these calls a week. I got a call on Thursday and it came on my cell phone. If you call the, the number at the church that's listed, it's a Google phone. It forwards to my cell phone. So I answer the phone. To when I see that Google line, I know it's a church call. And I said, Tula Springs Calvary Chapel, Pastor Chris, can I help you? And the guy on the other line, on the other end said, hey, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm stranded in Lake Point. And I, you know, blah, yada, yada. I got, I got this and something happened. I was in this thing and they left me and now I'm stuck and I got to get back to Canada. Can, can the church help me? And I said, well, how, how do you need help? He said, well, I need some money to get a, get a buck or something. And basically he just wanted money, but he had this kind of elaborate problem that he was in that could only be solved by money. So it's not like I could give him a sandwich or something like um, But what's, what's interesting is this particular, people getting stuck in Lake Point happens all the time. Like it's like, I get, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating. I get like four or five of these calls at least a month. Hey, I'm stuck. Usually it's in Lake Point. And can the church help me out? And when I first started talking to him, he said, oh, oh, you're the pastor at Life Church. Oh, man, I've been trying to get a hold of you. Thank you. So obviously he's calling all the churches in town. 
because he got me confused with another church that he was calling when I called him back. And so I just started talking to him. I want to be loving to him. But I said, oh, are you a Christian? Oh, yes, yes, I'm a Christian. I love it. I said, oh, that's great, because here's what the Bible says then. Wherever your local church is, that's who's responsible to take care of you. So because your pastor knows you, the people in your church know your name, you know who you are, you give there. So since you're a Christian, you have a local church, call your pastor and ask him to help you because he has the first responsibility. And, and I said, not that your need is not great and not that I don't want to help you because if, if God puts it on my heart to do something that's abnormal, I'm going to. But at the same time, um, my first responsibility biblically, and people don't like it when I tell them this, my first responsibility biblically is to the house of God, the local church that I serve in. And then beyond that, we can do some things. But the problem is, if we're all being honest, we, we get four or five of these calls a month, and I don't have the resources to meet everybody's need. But what I do have the responsibility to is for those that are in the local church. And, and you know what? Pastor John Corson, I have not yet done it, but Pastor John Corson, when he teaches this, he'll tell you, he'll just flat out tell you, I challenge you to find. I've not been able to find it. And this guy is the epitome of a Bible scholar, and, and you know, he, he's, he's the professor of Bible teaching. And he says, I challenge you to show me one place in the Bible where we're, we're required to take care of those outside the body. And you just won't find it. Now, the Bible says one thing it does say, it says, do good to all. Lo- love within, but do good to all. And, and I'm not excluding the way that we outreach to the world. Okay? That's part of our Christian love and Christian living. But what I am saying is this. Listen, our first responsibility and our first call of God is to love each other to love each other well, to provide and take care of each other. And then as God opens doors and puts things on our heart, we, we can and should be doing things for people outside the church. And again, I'm not saying, you know, Jesus said, you know, love the widow and do well and go visit the, um, the, the homeless and those that are in prison and all those things are all valid. But again, Jesus said, the way that they'll know you're my disciples is by your love, what? One for another. You know, it usually happens on that phone call that I get when someone calls and asks for money. Now, don't get me wrong. There's been times where, and I, I try to pray on every one of those calls. God, are you in this? Is this somebody that, whether they're a part of our church or not, that we're supposed to help? And there's been many, many, many times, many times, you know, and, and I got a big heart. And so, and I love helping people. I'll go drive and pick them up and get involved and do something personally, give them money out of my own wallet, whatever. I've done that many times. You know, my aunt's philosophy on that thing with the, when panhandling got really popular, you know, way back like in the 80s and it's gone ever since. But she's like, if they ask, I give it every time. Well, what if they're going to buy drugs for it, somebody says. She says, well, I don't care. I think that when I get to heaven, I'm in a better shape if I just gave it rather than, than tried to not, you know. And that's just her opinion. Other people are like, ah, don't give them a dollar. They're going to go buy a beer. And, you know, and that's okay, too. That's your opinion. But I try to let the Holy Spirit lead. But this particular call I got this week, I just felt like it was a scam call. It's like he'd already called all the churches. It's the same same exact excuse I got a bunch of times. I gave him my little spiel. And then when I basically told him, no, I'm sorry, we can't help you with money, then they get frustrated and they start calling me bad names and cussing me out and saying why I'm not a real Christian and this and that. Oh, I love that. When the F-bomb start dropping, I'm like, I made the right call. God bless you, brother. <laughs> you know, like, it, it just tells me I made the right call. All right, so... The point of that was loving each other. Don't get it twisted. Verse 4. Let's look at verse 4. So that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure. Everybody say persecutions 
and tribulation. Okay, these are things that you and I will face. Guess what was happening in the church of Thessalonica? They were facing lots of persecutions and tribulations. There was a Bible study going on in the house of Jason, Acts chapter 17 or 18. And, and the Thessalonians came in. They broke up the Bible study. They, they physically abused and beat the people that were attending. And so this was ongoing in Thessalonica. When Paul got there, what was unique was it only took three weeks for the enemies of the gospel to come in and make, the, make it so difficult for Paul that at night they had to sneak him out of the town. So this faction that was taking place in Thessalonica against the Christian church continued. Now, we don't see it here, and we don't experience it. Maybe you guys don't understand how that works, but really, that's the same thing all over the world. If you, if you, if you, I have a new diet plan. You know, diet plans make a lot of money. I think I can make some money with this one. All you got to do, you want to lose some weight, get a Bible, get an airplane, and go to Saudi Arabia. And take your Bible down to Mecca. And they will take you to Chop Chop Square, and they will take off your head, and you'll lose about five, seven pounds. You, you, you try to preach the gospel or bring a Bible, bring a box of Bibles into China. And they'll put you in jail until you lose some weight. And, and so, you know, the underground church in China, how many of you guys are familiar with that? And, but it was the fastest growing church in the world for a long time. I think, I think some other places now, right now where, where God is moving um, globally the most, where we're seeing the most revival happening today is in Muslim countries. And among Muslim people is where um, in Iran and in Saudi Arabia, Iraq, places like that, um, um, Assyria, among Muslim people, the gospel of Jesus is growing faster among Muslims than any other um, demographic in the world today. But um, there was a time where, and still is, where China, because of the communism, the persecution, the church was underground. Our founding pastor, Pastor Chuck, had the opportunity to go to Beijing and to go to China and preach and visit some underground churches and some of the people that helped organize the underground churches. When Chuck came back, he said there, there was a, a million house churches in China that, I, that called themselves Calvary Chapel in the time. But the church was all underground. When he came, when Chuck came, they had to go through all the front doors. And so they, um, they, they had an assigned um, interpreter from the government that went with them everywhere they went. And by the time they got to about their third speaking engagement, they had another interpreter that was theirs that was from the, the house churches in China. And he said, Chuck, he said, that guy is saying all kinds of stuff that you're not saying. He's not really interpreting everything you're saying well, and he's adding all the communist spin to what you say. So like in the fourth place they stopped, they were able to insist that they use their own interpreter to, to, to stop this. And the way that they, they were able to, to go, and that we see the church in China because of the persecution. But do you know what happened when the persecution hit China or what, with the church? It exploded. And you see that all the way through the Bible. Wherever there's persecution, the church explodes. Why? Well, number one, it's like the Russian story. When you weed out those that are, that are there to really love and serve Jesus, there's more power among those that, that are on fire for God and want to go for it. And when, you know, it's not like when you're not a fair-weather Christian, and when you're in church in China and you realize, hey, going to Bible study means I might not come home tonight, and you still want to go, there's a real depth of commitment. And it's not like, oh, it's raining outside and the Lakers are on, I'm going to stay home. But, but when you take your life into, you know, that there's this really commitment to, follow, to have to follow Jesus in those places. And under persecution, the, the church grows everywhere. And so the Thessalonians were facing this persecution. And then in verse 5, Paul says, Which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Hey, look at verse 5. Manifest evidence. What, what was the manifest evidence? 
the trials and tribulations were the manifest evidence. They were the manifest evidence of what? The righteous judgment of God. How does that fit with your um, happy, healthy, wealthy theology and doctrine, folks? That God wants you to be happy, healthy, wealthy. Here it says that the evidence, the manifest, what does it mean manifest evidence? It means the the practical, the tangible evidence that you can hold on to in your life that God is working and that God is with you is trials and tribulations. That's not what we wanted to hear, huh? I mean, like, I found some gold bars on my way to work today or something, you know? That's evidence that God's with me. But if you don't have opposition, you got to check your position, right? Because one of the things, as you start kicking on the gates of hell, and if you're on fire for God, Satan doesn't want you to, to be successful, and so he's going to start attacking you. You know, and I've faced it my whole life as a Christian, and we face lots of opposition and lots of, you know, tri- tribulations and troubles. And it just, it always feels good. You know, actually, it's never easy. I'm not saying it's easy. But at least you have this, that, that if Satan's messing with me, I must be in the right place. Because if you're already on your way to hell and ain't doing nothing for God, and you're not kicking on the gates of hell, and you're not giving Satan and his, and his horde any trouble, they'll leave you alone. They bother you. You know, I know a lot of religious folks, and their lives seem great. They've got a white picket fence. Their grass is always mowed with the lines going the right way all the time. Their kids behave. No troubles in their lives. And you look at that, and you say, why don't, how come it seems like they never have any trouble? Well, part of the reason is they're already headed towards the wrong direction and headed towards hell, and so why would Satan mess with them? But if you start heading in the right direction, you know, any dead fish can float downstream, but you start swimming upstream is when you're going to begin to face the, the current. And, and that's what this verse says, verse 5, that it is the manifest evidence. And then it says, um, verse 6, since it, since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you. Now listen, let me encourage you guys with this. In Romans 8.18, Paul says that the sufferings of this world will not compare to the what? Somebody, to the glory. Say it like a nacho libre. I just want a little taste of the glory. I just want a little taste of the good life. Right? Paul says that the trials and tribulations of this life will not compare to the glory that shall be revealed in you. So the bad things, the hard things that you're going to face here, there's going to come a day of redemption. There's going to come a day of justice where God is going to set things right. Let me tell you something. Listen, this is important. You've never seen the world that God created. You've never seen the world that God intended. How many of you guys were there at the Garden of Eden? Okay, that was the world that God created. How many of you guys lived with Adam and Eve before Satan fell, before sin happened and sin and death entered the world? That's that's what God intended. Adam and Eve, they were designed to live to live forever. Adam lived to be 900 years, 900 and something years old. And the reason was because that he died at that point was the mercy and grace of God so he wouldn't live forever. But the bodies that God created for you and I are designed to live forever. The, the body that God's going to give you when you go to be with him will live for all of eternity. And there'll come a day, a thousand year reign of Christ here on this earth. And then after that, for all of eternity, where we're going to get justice where there's going to be no more handicapped parking spaces because there'll be no more handicapped people. The Bible says in that day that the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the lame will walk. Jesus said there'll be no more crying. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more fears. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more years. 
And there's coming a day where God's going to give us justice and where we're going to win and prevail. And he says, in this life, you're going to have trouble. But the trouble that you have in this life will not compare to the glory which shall be revealed in you. And then he's going to go on here and he's going to encourage the Thessalonians in the next verse to say to them that the people around you that are mocking you and persecuting you now, one day you're going to rule and reign over them. One day that they're going to look up to you with this great envy and the mocking is going to go away. And when when my glory is revealed in you, and that's a day that's coming where the people around you who don't understand as a Christ follower and mock you as a Christ follower and don't believe you and, and think you're weird or whatever, there's going to come a day where those people are going to look up to you and wish they had done what you did. They're going to wish they had dropped their flag. They're going to wish that, that, that you know, that's what Paul's going to say. He's encouraging them. There's going to come a day where those tables are going to flip and when Jesus is revealed and the truth is revealed, and then Peter tells us that we're going to rule and reign as priests and kings and for a thousand years. And we'll, we'll have this same, same folks who, who mock us now and they won't in that day because there'll come a day of glory and the glory which shall be revealed in you. In verse 7 he says, And to give you who are troubled rest with us. Big word. One more time. And to give you who were troubled rest with us. When? When are you going to get that rest? When the Lord Jesus is revealed. So what do you do in the meantime? Get your butt to work. There's work to do. You occupy till he comes. You face trials and tribulations and and, you know, ups and downs and mountains and valleys. And, but when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and the flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, in Revelation chapter 5, just hang out there. Let me read this to you. You know, last week we talked about um, in the pre-tribulation rapture to, uh in Revelation 4, verse 1, Metatauta, come up here, the church is gone. Chapters 2 and 3, all about the church. Church mentioned tons and tons of times. Then in chapter 4, we see the church being raptured, taken away. Chapter 5 of Revelation is a scene in heaven. Chapter 6 of Revelation begins the seven-year tribulation period, goes through chapter 19. Chapter 20 of Revelation describes a thousand-year reign right after the Battle of Armageddon, where we live on this world, redone, for a thousand years of perfect society, one last rebellion, and then chapters 21 and 22, eternal heaven where we'll spend the rest of eternity. But chapter 5 of Revelation is a scene that takes place between 4 and 6, the church being raptured and the tribulation period starting. And it says in in Revelation chapter 4, it says, and they sang a new song. Now they is, is the question here. Who is they? And this is the song they're singing. This is a scene in heaven. You are worthy to take the scroll. Now, let me set it up really quickly. There's, there's a title deed to the earth that Satan has. Adam and Eve, the Bible says when they sinned, Satan is called the God, little g of this world. So Satan has a power here in this world. When Satan took Jesus on top of the mountain and he tempted him three times, and one of the temptations was, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus did not say to Satan, hey, they're not yours to give, because they were Satan's to give. He is the God of this world. He, the Bible describes him as the prince of the air. And Satan is, is, is ruling and reigning to a certain degree and has power. And he has the title deed to planet earth. But we get to chapter 5 of Revelation, and this, this title deed that was forfeited over to Satan, that it says that John says that there was um, a silence in heaven for a half an hour. That means there was no women in heaven. 
And then, and then he says that we cried. Just kidding. We, yeah, how can women stay silent for a half an hour? That, that, that's maybe the one contradiction in the whole Bible. But, um, but it happens. So you know God is there, right? So, um, so there, there, there's this scene of just absolute silence for a half an hour where people are so shocked, nobody knows what to do and say. And it says that we were weeping because nobody was found worthy to take this title of, of everything back from Satan and redeem it back to God. And, and then it says, but yet there was one who was worthy, the Lamb of God who was slain. So Jesus shows up on the scene and he's the only one that's worthy to loose the seals and take back what Satan has now and redeem it back to God. And then right after Satan, Jesus takes it back and, and redeems us back to God and redeems planet Earth back to God, there's a celebration and we break out in song or they break out in song. And it says, this is what they sing. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. Now it says redeemed us to God. Revelation chapter 5, before the great tribulation, a group of people is in heaven and says, you have redeemed us by your blood. What group can say that? Only the church. Only the church can say, us, you have redeemed us by your blood. Covenant Israel can't even say that. They'll sing a different song at the end of Revelation when God redeems them. But we're, we're in heaven and we're singing that God has redeemed us back to Him. And then we'll enter that marriage supper of the Lamb. All right, you guys, we've got to be done. I haven't looked at my clock yet. Good thing, because I'm sure I'm over. But, hey, go with me to 2 Thessalonians. Let's, let's finish the last few verses. I'm in verse number 9. Did I miss 8? eight verse 8. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on only those who obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, again, just a promise that there'll come a day of vengeance. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I do want to say to you guys, as good as that feels, knowing that God is going to take vengeance on your enemy one day, you know, it should kind of break our hearts a little bit because we should still be, be desiring. You know, the Bible says it's not God's will that any should perish. That we should love our enemies is what Paul tells us in the last chapters. Do good to those. Don't repay evil with evil. And, and so, but there will come a day where God will get vengeance on your enemies. And then in verse 9 it says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction. Hey, what does that sound like to you? What is everlasting destruction and punishment? You know, it's popular nowadays to say there's no hell. It fills more seats in the church. If you don't have to, if there's no such thing as hell. But you know what? Jesus talked more about hell than he did about heaven. Jesus mentioned more about hell than a lot of other topics that, that we find in the Bible. And, and Paul mentions hell and this, this idea of eternal destruction many times. You just can't ignore it. And here we have it again. And you can read it for yourselves, make your own conclusion. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. And when he comes in that day to be when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you was believed. Therefore we also pray always for you that our God would count you worthy of this calling and fulfill all good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power. Hey, verse 11, I want you to just look at one little phrase we're going to highlight in that verse, and we'll talk about it for a minute and we'll be done. Um, the word is that you, would be count, that you would count worthy, count you worthy of this calling. Okay? That you would, count, you would be counted worthy of this calling. 
You know, I, I think I used to say, I think I've said this before from this pulpit, that the idea of being worthy is not necessarily a, a biblical concept, that, you know, that we're not worthy. But I, I did a little more research on it, and I, I think I was probably wrong, or I think I need to clarify, actually, because what I found was, and, 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 you know, I know the other place where Jesus says in Luke 21 in the Olivet Discourse, at the end of telling us about the end of the world, he says, pray that you would, that you would be found worthy to escape these things. And then we have this actually twice here, worthy, worthy, you're going to see in this chapter in Thessalonians 1. But really the idea, the concept of worthy is all over the New Testament. I did a word search on worthy. You can do it when you get home today. Just type worthy into your concordance and, and it'll pop up in every book of the New Testament somewhere or another. You know, one of the verses I think of is Jesus said, or the Bible says, walk worthy of the calling by which you've been called. But I think where, where I was trying to, what I was teaching and where I want to be careful of splitting hairs because actually the idea of being worthy, because I, I wanted to distance ourselves from the idea that we're worthy. And that was my attempt before. Because I hear some other people in our neighborhood say, oh, I'm worthy of the call and I'm worthy and I want to be worthy and I want to be worthy of, as if it's something that we can achieve, worthiness. I want to distance myself from that idea. But the reality is, worthy is a very biblical concept. But here's the difference. Listen, you're not worthy of your salvation. You don't do anything to become worthy to earn whether you go to heaven or hell or not. There's this thing in the Bible that's called imputed righteousness. That when God looks at you one day, there's only one thing he's going to see. And it's not how worthy you were or anything about your worth. He's going to see his son. And if he looks at you and he sees Jesus in your heart, in your life, you go to heaven. If he doesn't see Jesus, he's going to pull a trap door. Just kidding. You're not going to go to heaven. It's that simple. That's heaven and hell. And, and that is, is imputed to you. That's not something you earn. That's something that you receive by faith. It's a free gift of God. But listen, after you've received this, the Bible has this weird verse where it says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. What does that even mean? I can't work out my own salvation. God did that and all that. But what it means basically is this same idea that Paul's talking about. There is responsibility on our part. To, to strive, to walk, to be, to, to be worthy, to, to seek God, to be better, to, to keep our nose pointed towards Jesus. Amen? But listen, don't get it confused, the worthy concept. Don't get it confused with salvation. That's a different issue. What did, what did John the Baptist say? He said, I'm not worthy to what? Even tie his shoe. I'm not, I'm not worthy to get down on my knees like a slave and loosen Jesus' sandal. So that's the kind of the worthiness where we are. We're not even, you know, but God gives us his worthiness or his righteousness. And, and, and we go to heaven because of what Jesus did. But as Christ followers, you do find a concept repeated many times in the New Testament. Walk worthy. Be found worthy. Pray that you would be found worthy. And we've got to wrestle with that. And then in verse 10, when he comes in that day. All right. I wanted to start over. There, worthy is, is mentioned twice. So once in 11, worthy. And then, oh, where's the other one? Is it? Eight? No. Five? Five. Five and, five and that. So five is the other one. Which manifests evidence of the righteous judgment that you may be counted worthy. And then again, repeated in nine. Again, when we have a concept, or repeated in 11. Once you have a concept repeated, you've got to pay attention. Verse 12, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
All right, let's stand. There's going to come a day where Paul just tells us that that, that God is going to glorify himself in you. And the very fact that Jesus is in your life and Jesus is a part of who you are, that he's going to allow the rest of the world to see that and recognize that in you. And that's going to be a crown of glory moving forward. And I don't know how well that motivates us. It does encourage me to know that with, with the injustice that takes place, there comes a day where God's going to bring justice. But that's, that's not today. You know, we're, we're in a world right now where, where it's completely lawless. And, you know, where this, this, this whole thing is, is out of control with the rioting and looting. And, the, you know, and we, we can do both. You know, the, the, the stat that we didn't get this last couple of weeks that's not on CNN and ABC is that seven cops died in the last ten days. How many of you guys heard that? You know, we, we can stand with our law enforcement and also say that it, it's, it's wrong and, and unjust what happened to, to Floyd. And you know what cops hate more than anything? Our crooked cops. And we, we, can, we can do both. We can, we can recognize that this is wrong. This is injustice. It has to be dealt with. Black lives do matter. You know, and all lives can't matter until black lives matter. And, and, and yet we can, we can say that, and we can also say that police lives matter. You know, I like this one that, you know, kind of where I'm at, all souls matter, because I'm about souls more than I am about lives, where, where it's about people coming to Jesus, because ultimately Jesus is the answer. But listen, as a church, you guys, we have to find a way to be the glue. And I know we all have opinions, and we share them on Facebook, and we, we put our chests out about what's right and what's wrong. But I want you to understand, listen, as a Christ follower, we can't be a part of the division. And it's difficult because we, we, we can still speak our mind and we can still say what's right and we can still stand on the side of justice. But we have to have a heart through all of this that the onus, the responsibility starts with you and I. It starts in the house of God. I don't expect anything from Antifa and BLM and these, these terrorist groups or what they're doing. They're, they're not responsible, but you and I are responsible. We're responsible to be salt and light. How do we do that? How do we help be a part of the solution? Maybe we get out on the streets and we start preaching the gospel in the middle of the riots. I don't know. Maybe we somehow we show love. But listen, we have to be the solution. We have to be those that are, that are doing what we can to bring unity. You know, the Bible says there's going to come a day where the restraining power is going to be taken out at the rapture. What is the restraining power? That's you. That's the salt and the light of the earth. And we have to find a way in these days to share the gospel of love because Jesus is the only answer. There's only one race of people. There's only one blood. They're human race. I'm pretty sure every one of us, regardless of our skin color, all came from Adam and Eve. We all got the same great, 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 spare you 5,700 more great grandparents. Or we came from Noah and his wife because everybody died and then Noah, they started over somewhere. Goes through Noah, back to Adam and Eve. One race, one people. You know, and, and, and again, we, we don't want to be guilty of causing division. It's hard, right? We get mad about some of the things that are going on. And, and again, let's speak our minds, but let's have a heart through all of this that we're supposed to be the light of Jesus. And we're supposed to tell Jesus, people that Jesus is the only answer. Amen? Amen. The worship team is going to come back up, close us in a song. Hey, we're going to invite anybody that needs individual prayer. Come up and pray. Jay and Allie will be up front to pray for you guys. If uh, you want to ask Jesus in your heart to be your Lord and Savior, 
Hey, Adam, uh, Adam, Amber, and Josh, will you guys come up? Hey, uh, I meant to introduce Amber and Josh at the start of the service, and I forgot. But I said last week, these are um, our new interns that came from CBI. Amber and Josh, you've seen a lot of them. They just, they just moved here from uh, California to, don't judge them that they're from California, okay? They just moved here from California to, to serve in our church and help. Josh and Amber are going to start, um, he's going to be our youth pastor, and they're going to work with the youth and do a lot of things. And so you'll see them around. Amber works at Starbucks. She's helping out in the cafe, and eventually they'll be everywhere and in all things. So um, if you get a chance to introduce yourselves to them, um, they'll be up front to pray for you. If you'd like individual prayer, please, as we sing this last song, let's just spend another time, just like communion, just a moment to get away and seek the Lord. If you'd like prayer, again, we encourage you guys to come up for individual prayer. We'd love to pray for you guys. God bless you guys. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you, Lord Jesus, so much for this day. Father, I thank you that um, church is growing today, Lord, and people are coming back that haven't been back. And that, Lord, each week more folks are coming back. And we thank you for that, Lord. And we, we pray, Lord, for a, 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 just an end to COVID-19, fear and danger. And, Lord, we pray, Father, for again that, that it would go away and not come back and not have a second round. And, and Father, we ask that as a church, Lord, it, it just feels good to gather. It's biblical. The Bible says, don't forsake the gathering of the brethren. And I pray, Lord, for each one of us that we would be ready for your soon return. Lord, I pray for us as a church that we would be the light of Jesus. That, Lord, no matter where our hearts are, no matter where we stand, and Lord, that we would still be the voice of love and of unity and not division. And yes, of course, we know that Jesus is not a Democrat. He's not a Republican. That Jesus is for all people the love of God. And so, Lord, help us to, to find a way, Lord, even though we do have strong opinions and there is a right and there is a wrong, but that ultimately we're motivated as you are that all men would come to saving grace in Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be the love and the salt and the light in this world. And God, I pray if there's anybody here today that needs prayer or that, Lord, just wants encouragement or wants to ask Jesus in their heart, that you would encourage them now as we sing this last song to come up and receive individual prayer in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.